0: This is Psych Debates, a show about what really matters in mental health, of all matters, mental health. We bring you the biggest experts for the most important topics. By any means necessary. Let the debates begin. Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of Psych Debates. I'm your host, Dr. Monty Altahami. And I'm so excited to have you back on for this episode on race, identity, and radical openness. Dr. Jonathan Amayas is not with us today because of schedule and changes, but we are expecting him back on the next episode. His humor and intellect are surely missed and felt. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Anton Hart, Uh, is a training and supervising analyst of the William Allenson White Institute, associate co-producer for the film Black Psychoanalysts Speak. And if you haven't seen his film, you should definitely check it out. He is somebody who speaks nationally and internationally on the issues of diversity. Um, He has private practice in New York City, and we are looking forward to speaking with him today uh, on many things. Um, some of the topics we'll be covering today are identity, internalized racism, cultural competency versus radical openness, and tune in at the end of the episode for our book recommendation. Without any further delay, the house calls on motion for discussion. Dr. Anton Hart, we're so excited about having you on. You know, I've, I've had a lot of people ask me questions um, about this episode about what things they'd be interested about hearing about. I really do want to start from the beginning. The idea, the idea of identity and race seems to be uh, flexible. And so to me, at least, um, see, I was born in Saudi Arabia, but I'm Sudanese by ethnicity. And having been born then, I, I realized that I was Sudanese pretty early on. I can't really put a finger on it. Uh, but again, moving across the world to different countries, I've lived in three different continents and, and moving to the United States as an adult, I became aware of my identity as black. And that was also a new concept to me as a person. Um, so I was just curious to hear a little bit more about that, like the adoption of identity or perhaps how that happens and why that happens.
1: Well, so you're, you're asking about racial identity in mm-hmm. particular, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, identity as a concept is interesting to think about because it involves a person collecting all of these complicated strands of what it is to be alive in the world and trying to make them into something coherent and cohesive rather than feeling as if everything is an overwhelming mess. And identity is a way of collecting aspects of oneself one's sense of oneself, what the world tells us about who we are, the reflected appraisals of others that come up in conversations and interactions all our lives, and collecting those things into how we understand who we are. That's what we mean by identity. Eric Erickson, Eric Erickson was the most famous one to focus as a psychoanalyst on issues of identity and its development starting in early childhood. For Erickson, the first task in the development of identity was the establishment of trust in the world versus, as he put it, mistrust. Balancing how one has to be safe and protect oneself versus how much can one have faith that good things will happen if you engage with the world. that's Erickson talking, not particularly focused on race, but things get racialized quite quickly in terms of the issues of trust and mistrust. Of course, as you point out from your own development, where you're born, uh, what your ethnicity is, what your racial uh, identification is, all of these things are very pertinent aspects of all of our identities, of every human beings. Even if we identify the matter of race as a biological fiction, we see it as a social reality. There's, it's indelible in that sense that for every culture, race matters, whether we wish that it did or not. And so part of the formation of identity means formation of a racial identity for most people. Even those, by the way, who think, I, I, I don't have a race. You often, you often hear that in, the, in race workshops and, and ethnic, ethnicity workshops. Sometimes white people say, I don't have a race, I'm white. And I think fewer and fewer, fewer people are willing to make such an assertion. People are becoming more aware that being white does not mean the absence of race. It means the occupancy of a particular position in social hierarchy in the world, this country I'm most familiar with. It means being in the supreme position um, with all of its entitlements and powers thrown in. And that is a significant part of the formation of identity, too.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about what you said is this this idea of cohesiveness that, you know, kind of stuck with me as you were speaking and how that would become internalized, for instance, Um, how the idea of race becomes internalized Um, and and speaking specifically about internalized racism Um, and how that, you know, if you could speak on that, I'd be very curious to hear your opinion. How does cohesiveness... um, then lead to a, a process in which somebody's internalizing their own racism and kind of uh, expecting rejection
1: yeah it's a great question. We could spend hours talking about this actually but try to give a more concise response Living in the world from the time of birth, there is this overwhelming sense of curiosity that every human being I think starts with we're all born curious and we want to look at things touch things hear things taste things we want to take them in as human beings right from the very beginning and our lifespan really involves the uh, the curtailment of that originating primary curiosity It gets curtailed because being curious is not just a benign thing. It's not just cute. It's not just like the the wide eyes of a child curious about the world. It's also dangerous to be curious because curiosity can make other people anxious. And curiosity can also lead to discovering things that we didn't expect. And therefore, the disruption of our sense of continuity of being. So we try to put things together, starting from early childhood, really from infancy. We start to put things together to assemble a world in which we know what to expect. We know what's coming. And we build a model of the world in our minds that allows us to have a comfort in predicting and not being surprised by what comes. Now, the benefit of that is we learn from experience. And so we don't get unpleasant surprises because we learn how to steer clear of them. But the cost of developing this model of what to expect and curtailing our curiosity about the unexpected is that we give up some of our willingness to be surprised, some of our willingness to be curious about things that we don't know. When it comes to the matter of people who are different from oneself there are problems that come come up with curtailment of curiosity people start to gravitate toward knowing what another person is going to be like on the basis of their skin color then they don't have to be curious about them because they already know about them even if that means sacrificing encounters that could be interesting and enriching with broad swaths of the population, even if it means sacrificing all kinds of interesting engagements, many human beings, arguably most human beings are willing to sacrifice their, their willingness to be curious in the interest of the safety of knowing what's coming before it comes. It's a real risk to encounter a new person as if you don't know anything about them and you don't know what's coming. And you could be surprised because such surprises that could happen between people at any moment really are a threat. And they're a threat because they threaten our continuity of being, our sense of the predictability of life, the continuity of life, and importantly, our personal continuity, the continuity of self. So people, invested in a sense of personal continuity, wind up sacrificing their curiosity so that their going on being will not be threatened by encounters with others who are different. And what that means is I want to racialize myself so that I know who I am and where I stand. And I I racialize all others so that I know what those people are like and those other people And that third group of people, I know what they're like in advance and I don't have to engage and I don't have to be curious. I can stay with my own kind and things can remain in the relative safety of predictability.
0: Yeah, and it's so interesting that one would compromise their uh, sense of self or rather would exchange this continuity of sense of self for perhaps this internalized feeling of in- inferiority and live with that. And, and that's always a very curious dilemma, isn't it? And it brings to mind, you know, I know that you, you um, this idea of radical openness that you, 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 you wrote about extensively. Um, and I'm curious to hear about how that can combat that, you know, not only in the context of a diet or, or rather for, for our audience, the context of a therapy therapist and a patient, But rather in in a broader context.
1: Yeah. Well, Monty, you're pointing out something important that I didn't fully answer in my previous reply. You're pointing out the ways that some of the things that people cling to as the things that they already know and know what to expect are things that hurt them, hurt themselves. So, like expecting to fulfill the negative perceptions of others is. Part of the legacy of racism. Not only does racism result in people being discriminated against by those who have power over them, but it also results in a shaping of the individual sense of themselves. We see this time and time again with people's performance in school. I can remember as a child. And I'm a biracial person. My father was African American. My mother was Eastern European Jewish American. Um, But I thought of myself from a pretty early age as black, as biracial, but as black. I also think of myself in the present day as white and black, both, and, and multiracial. But anytime I had to take a test in school, a standardized test, the test felt like it was being delivered to me by white people who wanted to see me not do as well on the test as as my white classmates so if you if you look at just that in microcosm that example like i feel that my white classmates felt like the people who wrote the test were on their side were like them and i had a feeling that the people who wrote the test were trying to to figure out that i didn't belong in the advanced, the gifted class, or I didn't didn't deserve to do as well. So here, this becomes a part of my identity, my way of thinking about myself and my way of expecting how I'll perform. And it preserves my sense of continuity of being. It protects me from surprises, but it also involves a serious personal sacrifice of my potentials.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that that is very interesting. How that um, it's almost like a self fulfilling prophecy that um, Precisely. one can one kind uh, to maintain this sense of self, one must also maintain a projections that others have on them um, that they've internalized in in some way, uh, which is very interesting. People don't really, I don't think it's as fully as appreciated by people. Um, that that can be perhaps the most detrimental component um, of the experience of being an other person or or being minoritized in some way, yes. and and I wonder what how how would one combat that in in themselves? Because I know you speak about radical openness, and radical openness tends to be this dance between a therapist and the patient, where they they they're open to each other in in kind of being. Um, flexible with learning new information, perhaps, if I was to phrase it, phrase it very crudely, how would that work in the context of somebody doing that with themselves?
1: Well, so the, the concept of radical openness originated in my work in two different areas. One was in the therapeutic setting, where it's very important, I find, for therapists to listen to their patients as openly as possible without presuming that they know what they're going to hear and without presuming what it means. So that's one area that this came up. Therapists sometimes work with the notion of what they call transference. And transference involves the idea that originates with Freud and and Freudian psychoanalysis, that um, the patient is going to come in and project things onto the therapist that are part of the patient's own history, part of the patient's own childhood. And the the idea there was that the therapist, in re- remaining a relatively neutral figure, is going to be the recipient of projections by the patient based on what the patient has already been through. So it's a powerful concept and it has lots of use in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and in, really in many therapies, even those that don't call themselves psychoanalytic or psychodynamic. But the problem with focusing too strictly on transference and the transference situation is that therapists have a way of warding off things that their patients tell them that the therapist feels uncomfortable with or feels that don't apply to the therapist. So in that case, radical openness asks the therapist to be open to the idea that the patient might be speaking the truth. The patient might be right about what they're seeing in the therapist, not just projecting it or importing it from the past, but they might be right about it, even if it doesn't sound familiar to the therapist. So the therapist might think, well, the patient is seeing me as kind of aloof and cold, but I know that I'm actually a warm person. So if the patient is seeing me as aloof and cold, then that's a projection. Like that's kind of transference 101, if you will. The stance of radical openness asks the therapist to say, wait a second, There's a temptation to say, oh, this is being transferred. This is coming from someplace else. This has nothing to do with me. But radical openness asks that therapist to push push pause and take in what the patient is saying and imagine how what the patient is experiencing with them might have truth in it. And that's what the openness is about. It's a receptive openness, not Something about like therapists engaging in self-disclosure to their patients about personal things. That's not the point of radical openness. It's being as receptive as possible to the truths that the patient may bear in relation to the therapist, even when the therapist can't consciously identify those things as true. If, if psychoanalysis teaches us anything, it's that we all have unconscious mental lives without exception, no matter how much therapy or analysis we've had. We are perpetually unconscious, even as we are also conscious. And so any therapist who thinks they simply know what they're like or know who they are, I would argue is fooling themselves. So that's the therapy end of radical openness. It all the concept of radical openness also developed in the context of dialogues about race, ethnicity, difference in terms of gender identity or sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, physical ability status, all of the different diversities. I've done a lot of work in the diversities area and what what I've found is that one of the most important things that we can do to further Our ability to get along with each other and understand each other is not be trained what to know in order to be multiculturally competent, but instead to be as open and receptive as we can to others who seem strange to us. And so there, as you can anticipate, radical openness involves listening to the other, the person who seems other as if they bear news that's important for us to hear, including news and truths about ourselves. Even when what the other bears sounds foreign, sounds strange, sounds wrong, radical openness asks for the listener, the participant in the dialogue across race or culture or whatever to listen with openness with as few presumptions as possible and with humility. Humility that I don't know everything and I might find out something, not just about this other person, but I probably could find out something about myself and I could lose some misconceptions, some preconceptions that I come into this conversation with. So radical openness asks us to participate in conversations not trying to gain knowledge, but trying to lose faulty foreknowledge, things that we already knew, prejudices mm. that we carried with us. That's what radically open conversation. Can you
0: explain a little bit about the differences between that um, losing the foreknowledge and gaining new new knowledge? I'm I'm curious about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really important one. Like we often think about having a conversation with a new person as wow, this will be cool, I'll learn about somebody new. I'll learn about their world. I'll learn about where they're from. I'll learn something about what it's like to be them. Or I'll learn about something that they're interested in or they're expert in. But the kind of dialogue that I'm hoping to cultivate between people around issues of diversity is based on this branch of a uh, branch of philosophy called hermeneutics. And I won't go into a whole hermeneutic uh, account, except to say that in philosophy, hermeneutics, a branch of philosophy, says that we can learn most about what it is to be a human being through dialogue. Dialogue occupies a central place in, in becoming more fully human and understanding our own humanity and further hermeneutics, urges that participating in dialogue means listening openly and being willing to lose what one thought one knew. Being willing to lose what one thought one knew. That's what I called foreknowledge. That's a term that comes from Hans-Jörg Gadamer. Foreknowledge is how he described people's preconceptions their collections of the strands of things into a cohesive sense of themselves and other, the identity that we were talking about earlier. People form that into a set of expectations and presumptions about others. And hermeneutic dialogue, this orientation to dialogue, asks us to enter into conversations not with what can we gain while still occupying the same exact position that we came in with, but instead What can we lose? How can we be changed by this conversation such that we let go of some things that we were clinging to that protected our sense of identity, protected our sense of continuity of being? How can we loosen our grasp, let go of those things to listen more fully to what might come by surprise from the other? So that's really different, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. And it's cognitively challenging, I think, for somebody to even wrap their head around that immediately because, you know, since time immemorium, memoriam, uh, people are seeking knowledge. People want more knowledge. People are trying to accumulate knowledge over a period of time and build up on it until they have this like amass this library of information. Um, and that seems to be the penultimate uh, uh disposition, but I think it. what it seems here is that letting, and it's actually frightening, I just think about it, it's just kind of scary to let go of things that I know, because what will I know in the end? Um, is that the, I guess, what would be the, the counter, not the counter argument, but just a question, rather, is like, w- what if I do lose my sense of self in that? Mm-hmm. Would that be a beneficial thing?
1: Yeah, well, that's always the the risk, that's the danger, I don't want to engage in such an open dialogue, which would involve potentially losing things that I think I know, because then my sense of self is threatened just as you're observing. But the point is not that everything you know, you'll have to lose. The point is that things are probably gonna have to get more complicated as you lose some of your preconceptions. If I haven't met a certain person who looks different from me, but I have presumptions about them because of my acquired prejudices over the course of my life that have made me feel secure by knowing in advance what a person who looks like that is about, then I'm gonna have to lose, if I enter into real dialogue with them, I'm gonna have to lose what I think I know about them. Now that doesn't mean I have to give up everything, doesn't mean I have to give up my moral convictions, the things I learned in school. Doesn't mean that, but probably it's best if we give up some of the things we learned in school because things are all, knowledge is always evolving and shifting and changing. And if we too rigidly adhere to knowledge, then it, it, it becomes stultifying and, and inflexible and we're gonna pay a price for such inflexibility of our models. But you're absolutely right in recognizing that there is genuine risk involved in having a really open, radically open conversation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We might lose some things that have been a source of comfort and, yeah. and such losing can make us feel worse, at least for a while
0: absolutely and i'm i'm also curious to hear about outside the context of um, a therapist and a patient or a client how can one apply this in, and i don't know if you have you've given this any thought or not how can how can a normal person apply this in their day-to-day conversations when they're trying to perhaps be more open and are willing to take that risk how would they how would they do that
1: yeah so the first thing I have to say a little jokingly is normal people are in psychotherapy all the time. Okay. <laughs> let's, not, you know, let's not perpetuate the, the stereotype that you have to be messed up in order to, to to be in therapy. Like some of the most people I know are in therapy. And yeah, so so, but I know you know that, but I, I, I want to no
0: absolutely and i agree a hundred percent that's not that was not the intention the intention was to rather say more more general broadly speaking other contexts uh perhaps when when you're not with your um therapist um how how can how can one person um apply this in the context of for instance how can teachers apply this to their students um and or colleagues in business you know
1: yep yeah so so, so I have done some thinking about this and, and, and I, I have been interviewed, like particularly during the last election cycle, people wanted to know like the nation is so divided and and people are occupying different epistemological universes, uh, different um, orbits of what is real and what is not. and And how can we bridge the gap? How can we transcend the divide? And these are some of the questions that I've been asked and that I've done some thinking about, but I can't say that I have the ultimate answer uh, to, to solve uh, the, the, the divided state of our nation and uh, and many parts of the world. But I will say this: entering into conversation with humility is really what radical openness is talking about. And by humility, I mean, I think I. Know certain things. I think I have certain understandings. But if I hold my understandings a little less tightly and listen to the other person as if they could potentially make my understandings shift, then I could be engaged in a radically open conversation. In that case, I'm prepared to lose what I think I know, what I think I'm sure of. It doesn't mean I have to give up those things. It doesn't mean going toward absolute relativism and saying, oh, you speak your truth, I'll speak mine or I'll share your truth now. Like, I, I hate that phrase, by the way, speak your truth because I think it's passive and patronizing. Like, I, I think that that rather than saying, you know you over there, you can have your truth, and we over here will have ours. I think we're better off trying to see where we can meet up, trying to see where we can find each other, trying to see what we're clinging to that makes it hard to understand each other. Those are things that that ordinary people can engage in all the time. One way that I like to talk about this is through the idea of of um speech that is reflective and involves listening so in other words listening while i'm speaking is the way i hope to speak and by that i mean that i'm speaking to a particular person here you and i are having this conversation i'm looking at your face on the computer screen and we're we're in dialogue with each other and i'm looking at your responses to what i'm saying and i'm trying to find a way to connect with you and my sense of what is coming across. And my words will only come out the way they do because of the particular person that you are and your sensibilities and responses to me. And then you'll say some things to me. You'll ask some questions. I'm doing most of the talking because I'm the guest on your show. But the point is that speaking with the one who you're speaking to in mind is part of the concept of radical openness keeping in mind who's listening to you, changes the way you speak, if you're willing to have humility and willing to be sensitive to the other person. That changes the conversation, I think, in a profound way. It's very different. Like the name of your show is Psych Debates. Well, in a way, having a radically open hermeneutic conversation is the opposite of a debate. Now, it's not that we can't disagree. Of course we can, and we have to if that's the way we're seeing things at the time. But it's not a debate in the sense of speaking such that you're trying to win an argument. You're trying to win the debate. Radical openness asks us in a certain sense to try to not to lose the debate, but to try to lose the understandings that we have that are changed as we speak to this other person and as we listen to them the out, the positive outcome in that case is that people's understandings are expanded both parties in the conversation they might not wind up agreeing with each other they may but they might not but that's not the goal the goal is that we make contact with each other we receive something from the other about their understanding of themselves and the world and their understanding of us and we take the other's understanding of ourselves very seriously rather than disrespectfully, like you don't know me, you can't do something to me. It's more like we wanna have humility. You say I'm being rude. I don't feel like I'm being rude, but let me think about how I might be being rude. You say I'm um, elitist and I have privilege and power. Well, I don't think of myself as having privilege and power. I think of myself as a good person. But let me hold that notion lightly, let me have humility, let me think about the ways that maybe I'm not a good person, at least in certain contexts, at least for this person. That humility, that letting go of the things that we're most attached to in order to have open conversation is what I'm interested in urging, both in the therapy setting and in dialogues across the boundaries of difference
0: wow that's uh, you know i really liked a lot of things about what you said um i think that's transformative um you know one one part of my mind the more logical part of my mind perhaps um or the more concrete part of my mind is like well how does that how does that look like in a conversation you mentioned the the context of debating um and given that as an example um but how how not to say that there necessarily needs to be a script but sometimes people do want to hear, want to have somebody to kind of show them the first step, like how would that, what does is, what is humility look like, you know, and and people, to different people, that word means different things, um, and I'm I'm curious to hear, for my own sake, but also for the audience, what that would look like more concretely in terms of a conversation that I would have for, with somebody, for instance, the conversation perhaps that I'm having with you right now, how would I um, demonstrate more humility, would it be just Listening, listening to you, um, and re- and internalizing what you're saying before I speak would it be, um, would it be agreeing with you and perhaps challenging my own preconceptions of what I thought? Yeah, just to give a few examples, not yeah, to. Yeah, kinda... yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's it's it it doesn't listening with humility doesn't mean becoming more agreeable. Uh, I think inherently, I think it has more to do with listening and notice when when we start to become uncomfortable with what the other person is saying, and, and trying to not give in to that sense of anxiety or uncomfortableness by defending ourselves. Like the first impulse that, that most of us have is to defend ourselves, to to present a counter argument, or to tell the other person, no, you're wrong about what you're attributing to me. And And this stance asks us to say, hmm, I'm hearing something right now that sounds strange to me, that sounds foreign to me, but I'm going to still try to listen to it and sit with it for a while. And try to, to try to take it into my care is a phrase that I, a phrase that I like to use. Taking what the other person says into your care. That's, um, language that comes from um, a theological philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, listening to what the other person says and taking it into one's care, even when it seems foreign or strange or makes us uncomfortable or nervous, because we don't have to arrive at a final pronouncement like, no, what you're saying is wrong. No, I disagree. We don't have to resolve these things. We have to in a in a radically open conversation, sit with them. We want to be, in other words, responsive rather than reactive. That's a crucial distinction I, I let I make all the time in the therapeutic context and other places. Being responsive means really sitting for a while with what you're hearing and being thoughtful about it when, when you do respond. Whereas Um, Being reactive means giving in to the impulse to talk back and to protect your understandings, to protect your intellectual turf, to protect what's sacred to you. And that reactivity, being reactive rather than thoughtfully responsive, can lead to escalations very quickly in conversations about things that are difficult.
0: Hmm well that's a really interesting concept and i think we can we can spend the rest of the hour or many hours talking about it and i have so many questions but i do want to get to other more important questions as well okay. um which is when i you know as as a as a provider and being black and being a, a psychiatry resident and i imagine for yourself being a psychoanalytic a psychologist you're part of a very small group of people Um uh, in in terms of, or, you know, in in terms of, um, comparatively speaking, uh, in in regards to other races, other, um, other folks in the, in the field. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to hear about what are some of the issues that you think are pertinent for a black patient specifically? Mm -hmm. Um, what are some of the unique presentations? I know they're probably, again, this is, could be the whole podcast, but I'm just curious to hear about some of the starts of those things um, and what providers should be aware of as kind of a follow-up question to po- folks that are might not be Black.
1: Yep, yep, yep. So so, so forgive me for, for, for taking exception to the term provider, but I do want to say that I don't like to use the term provider. I, I like to use practitioner or therapist or psychiatrist or psychoanalyst or social worker I don't like provider because I think it's an invention of the managed care industry, of the insurance industry, and it really represents an attempt to commodify um, and and reduce the sense of expertise of therapists who train long and hard to do the work that they do. Calling them providers, I think, degrades our professions. that that was my little axe to grind that I wanted to put put out there.
0: No, thank you. That I'll, I'll definitely sit with that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Great, sounds good. So, so I think that I I in my practice I do see um, a significant number of people from various racial minorities, including people who who are who consider themselves black. Significant proportion of my practice, and uh, one of the reasons for that is that. Um, Practitioners of color are so few and far between, as you have pointed out. One of the things that I've written about is that every single person, every person of color, and every person who's white, I put white in quotation marks because whiteness has all different kinds of meanings, we're all suffering from, from fallout, from the legacy of slavery, and from the trauma of slavery both us black people and also white people, as Francis Fanon urges us to to recognize that, that nobody escapes the tyranny and the suffering and the toxic fallout, the corrosive fallout of racism, enslavement, subjugation of human beings. Black people have a particular fallout from it, particular transgenerationally transmitted experience of trauma oppression degradation devaluation and it's still going on through Jim Crow into the system of mass incarceration that we live under in this country in the present day um, Brian Stevenson recently j- just over this past weekend was giving a lecture to my professional organization the American psychoanalytic and he was presenting staggering figures about how many people we lock up, mostly people of color in this country who are locked up, children, women, men, old, young, we lock people up as a matter of policy systematically. And and black people, whether they've been locked up or not, suffer as a people from that state of affairs, and also living under the conditions of white supremacy, which we are living under. I think that used to be like a controversial thing to say. I think at this point in the evolution of ideas, at least in the the professional and personal settings that I walk in, Uh, There's no more debate about whether we're living under the conditions of white supremacy. We are. Question is, what can be done to dismantle it and to, to make a world that's for all people? But black people are living under those conditions and they are sensitive to the signs that there are forces of white supremacy operating in any given context. When a person comes to therapy or when a person comes to a doctor for any, any medical doctor. They are likely to be more vigilant than a person who's not black about the structures in place, the presumptions in place that are going to lead to their getting suboptimal care or even being mistreated. So I think like a message that I would send to all practitioners is, don't presume that that's paranoia. Don't presume that a black person who's seeking treatment but who feels cautious or mistrustful in some way is just being paranoid. People have have lived lives in which they've seen time and time again, that black people are treated badly and they have good reason to be cautious about the care that they receive. So that that's one of the things that we have to be radically open to. Like sometimes doctors can feel like, well, I'm doing good, I'm here to help you. I'm not one of those bad people who would discriminate against you and give you substandard care and not believe that you feel pain to the same degree that white people feel pain. I'm one of the... I'm one of the good doctors. Clinging to one's own sense of goodness is a major impediment to listening with openness to the things that our patients might be concerned about. We have to be open to what they're concerned about and not try to talk them out of it, but to listen and let them get a chance to feel whether they can trust us or not. And that all goes, goes back to humility, really. Like, we have to have humility that, uh, that, that, that even if we can't see the ways we are participating in structures of white supremacy, that we may very well be. And by the way, I think that applies even to black doctors, even to black therapists, even to black psychoanalysts. We can be seen as representatives of white supremacy, even though our skin color or our racial identity is one of blackness that even there we you know just by showing up with a tie on or with the badge that says md or phd or whatever we represent structures that are seen as potentially hazardous potentially dangerous and potentially oppressive and that have often been dangerous and oppressive in the past and continuing into the present if we're not open to that as practitioners, then we don't deserve to earn our patients' trust.
0: Wow, that's that is, that's very very um, insightful. Um, I think there are so many things to be said there because I I think as a as a as a psychiatry resident, uh, not to use the word provider again, um, <laughs> I think. I I feel that a lot with patients, um, this this sense of worry about something or anticipating the rejection or anticipating uh, the poor cure um, and the conflict starting from there, um, because it seems to be like it's not sitting on a common ground of information, uh, almost like two different paradigms that are not mutually, uh, inclusive in that sense and uh, you know I perhaps experience it less than my white colleagues um, but I feel it as well with with those those structures as you mentioned those power structures that I might carry and in, in inadvertently like being an MD uh, and being part of an academic institution and operating within an, an academic institution that is um, mostly run um, and administered by people higher up that are white you know and I think it is a dilemma a lot of times because one and the vaccines is one example i think in particular where that that is gained national attention mm-hmm. you know vaccine hesitancy and mm-hmm. i think the same can be said for uh, people seeking out psychotherapy or wanting to talk about their mental health yeah and i i do wanted to explore that a little bit more with the time that we the little time that we have which is why do why do um Why do black people find it more difficult to to be more um and you mentioned some of this but particularly in regards to mental health issues to be more vulnerable um in that regard um at least from my very brief experience that's been the case um talking about subjects related to mental health come with a lot of stigma um it's represented as weakness Mm -hmm. um and i'm curious to hear your your thoughts on that
1: yeah so so first um, just to to qualify our our discussion we're talking about black people in general but there really is a range of responses to vulnerability right. and to seeking treatment for mental health as 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 I'm, as as, I'm, as we all understand but but i think that you are talking about something real in terms of the sense of stigma and the sense of hesitancy in that regard I think that uh, the reasons are complicated. Um, some of them have to do simply with the matter of, if you if you have vulnerability, you better not show it because it it could be a risk, both historically and in the present day, to show vulnerability when you're trying to survive. So, you 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 you, you couldn't let on that that you have any weakness, any concern or any anxiety, because then you could become, a, you could become targeted in, in ways that we all are desperately trying to avoid. That's one thing. Another thing is that people uh, coming from the history of enslavement have had to learn profound mechanisms. We, Black people as a people have had to learn profound mechanisms to distance ourselves from our feelings when we are under attack, because we're in a war for survival. And if we don't distance ourselves from our feelings, it it can seem as if we'll fall apart and crumble rather than be able to fight to stay alive. So the prospect of therapy, psychotherapy, opening up, becoming more vulnerable threatens some aspects of what black people as a people have learned that they need to do in order to survive. Don't let down your guard. Don't cry. Don't let somebody who beats you know that it hurts. In that way, uh, you hope at least to retain your dignity and your sense of emotional integrity. So that represents a major challenge for people who want to offer psychotherapy, mental health services to people of color, to black people in particular. You're starting from a point of being interested in helping them talk about things, open up about things. And sometimes my my colleague, Kathy White uh, said uh, in the film, Black Psychoanalysts Speak that we made, She said, some black patients come to her and they say, don't mess with my anger. You're gonna try to take away my anger by analyzing me, by helping me see what lies behind my anger, which might be something like vulnerability. And and, and Kathy was arguing that that this is a sensitivity that comes of the attachment to the anger, the need to, to be able to retain that anger as, a vital source of survival. My colleague Beverly Stout has written recently about black rage, she calls it, a rageful response to discriminatory oppressive processes. And she's tried to develop the idea that it's adaptive, that we can't just try to analyze rage out because people depend on their rage for their own emotional, psychological survival. So, so so these are these are issues that we have to be respectful of. We have to be respectful of what we're asking people to lose, what we're asking people to let their tight grip to, to relinquish their tight grip upon.
0: Hmm. Yeah, wow. Well. Um, well, that's, that's, that's very insightful again. You know, I think each of these, um, can have their own, uh, exploration pathways to, to kind of explore more, you know, I did want to explore the idea of otherness just in the last few minutes here, how that, you know, we, I, you know, I tried to speak from the context of, um, of being black and for black people. And I think now I'm curious maybe to hear from the other perspective and how that otherness forms, how does, how does one become or or how does racism how is racism created from another person's perspective um, hmm. uh, it, I know we have a few few minutes here left, and I'm trying to squeeze as much value for our audience members so we can we can keep it as short as, as you wish
1: yeah um, I'm not sure what to say I mean w- w- racism is so pervasive in every society, in in every culture all over the globe. And we see that it seems to have a certain kind of survival value for groups because groups can band together in hatred of others who are different. And there's a lot that people want about that banding together and of, of getting rid of and depositing over there in that other group, the things that are bad, including things about us that we don't want to own, we can put them elsewhere. And they're over there, safely over there, rather than a threat within ourselves. One thing that I wanna circle back to, Monty, from the last question, Um, one more common thing that, Patients of color, black patients, come into treatment with is, I've been being a person might say I'm being treated this way. I feel like I'm being discriminated against, but people tell me I'm crazy. People tell me that that's not what's going on, that I'm not being promoted for some other reason at work, or I or this happened to me not because of my race but because of some other reason, and it's starting to make me feel crazy and depressed, and for many of these people exploring the details and and being heard and listened to and responded to by a person who can understand and see the reality of what they're going through that that is vitally important and potentially healing in and of itself even if we can't eliminate the forces of repression we can um we can help a person not feel crazy about the crazy world that they're living in. The worst is to be living in a crazy world and to have everybody tell you that you're crazy for thinking that it's a crazy racist world.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I, I, I can certainly relate to that <laughs> uh, sentiment as well. Um, I know we got a couple of uh, minutes here and, uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do for our audience members is see if we have any um, if you have any recommendations for if they're interested in learning more about identity, um, about how they could think about these topics in a more nuanced way. If you have any book recommendations, uh, we'd be happy to take them. If not, that is acceptable as well as we conclude.
1: Well, I mean, there's so many books to read. I think the most interesting, important books on issues of identity, are books that are written by, um, by writers of fiction rather than by academics, quite frankly. Um, like, I, I, I recommend reading Richard Wright. Re- read the book, Black Boy, if you want to understand something important about black experience, rather than reading some academic who's organized different studies and perspectives and made a certain argument. But read not just, Black authors, but all authors, any author who renders the human experience true to life is gonna be a rich source of information and understanding, much richer than a person who's putting a theory forward.
0: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Hunt. It's been really awesome uh, talking to you about this topic. I've learned so much. I'm really excited for our audience members hearing this episode. Um and I'll be I'll be tuning in to some of the things that you put out um to make sure that I stay updated and we'll be attaching that reference for our audience members in the podcast description. Thank you again for tuning in to Psych Debates for another great conversation.